Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Philippians chapter 2. When you get there, put your finger on verse 19. That's what we'll read here in a few moments, the passage that we'll be studying together. You know, they say that imitation is the highest form of flattery, and I think that that applies in just about every sphere of life except parenting. Uh, imitation is not a form of flattery. When your kids uh, project little images of yourself, you see them doing the things that you've done, and you're like, oh no, I don't want that for you. And so imitation is the, is the highest form of flattery in everywhere but, but parenting. I remember when I uh, burped one morning at breakfast, and then for the rest of the day, my daughter Delaney followed me around the house, sticking her chin out and making these burping sounds and laughing at her dad and making fun of me. And I remember walking in one day after being gone, and and it was before Delaney could talk, and, and I walked into the living room, and she had taken this box top, uh, this, that was black box top that's about a couple inches tall, and she positioned it in the living room floor and stood on top of it, and then she just began speaking gibberish and waving her hands in the air, and, and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with my daughter. I was like, Kim, is she broken? And uh, what, what is she doing? And, and I began to look closely, and I began to think about what she was doing, and it turned out she was imitating her dad. Uh, she's seen me in this church plant stand on a black platform and wave my hands in the air and speak what some people think is gibberish, you know, and that, that, that was the image. I didn't like that very much. My son Asher's the same way. He uh, loves sports. We watch basketball together and we have a little tykes basketball goal in our living room and he loves anything round he's throwing at it. It doesn't matter if it's supposed to be thrown or not. It's going towards that goal. But the thing about him, he's picked up on how often NBA players tend to flop that every time they shoot or dunk or do something, they tend to fall to the ground. And so it doesn't matter where he's at in the room. If he shoots, he's falling to the floor immediately. And I'm saying, Asher, that's not how you play this game. You don't have to fall down after every shot. He's gonna make LeBron, he's gonna uh, challenge LeBron James as being the biggest flopper one day because he's just doing it over and over and over and over again. Well, I say that to you because what my kids are doing is they are imitating the things that they've observed in me. Observation leads to imitation. That which we see, we often do. We live in a monkey see, monkey see, monkey do kind of world. And so we're constantly influencing one another in various ways, shapes, or forms. And so observation, imitation. Thomas Brooks said that example is the most powerful rhetoric. That people are observing us and they are imitating us whether we want them to or not, whether we like it or not. We are constantly influencing others and being influenced by others on that front. And so I want to ask you tonight is what example are you setting? What example are you setting for those around you? But more than that, not only do I want you to consider tonight what example are you setting, I want you to consider what models are you following? What examples are influencing you? What is giving shape to your life? What is molding the examples that you are setting for others? You know, one way to define leadership, one way that leadership has been defined is, is as influence. And if we take that definition and say that leadership is influence, and that means each and every person in this room has leadership potential. Each and every person in this room is leadership oriented whether they realize it or not because every one of us have the potential to exert influence on the lives of those around us. 
We are setting examples for people to follow in the way that we uh, lead our homes. We're setting examples for the way for other people to follow in the way that we hang with our friends and roll on Fridays and Saturdays. We're setting examples for those around us and how we go about our job on a day-to-day basis. We are constantly influencing others. And so we want to see as a family of faith, what type of examples are we setting? What types of examples are influencing us so that we might grow in the influence we are exerting? in this church, in this city, and around the world for the glory, for the glory of God. One of my passions in the life of the church has been growing increasingly over the past year or so is this, I want to see leaders developed and discipled in this church, not just for this church, but for every sphere of life. I want to see leaders develop within this church who, who lead well in their homes by loving and modeling Christ for those they live with. I want to see leaders affecting and influencing change in their peer groups and social settings. I want to see leaders affecting the workplace as salt and light, contributing to human flourishing in various ways, shapes, or forms. We want to emphasize leadership development in the life of this church. And by that, I do not mean position. I mean influence. And so we want to consider what type of examples we are setting. We want to consider what type of examples are we following. And here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, we have this passage that at first glance, it may be hard to see the value and the beauty in it. Because it's one of these passages that if you parachute in without any reference to the things that have come before it, it may seem strange. It's one of those passages that if you read out of context, you might think it's irrelevant to you. What this passage contains is what is referred to as a travelogue. It contains Paul's plans of travels as they relate to his friend Timothy and his friend Epaphroditus, as well as himself and the and the church at Philippi. And he's communicating his plans to the church for himself, Timothy Epaphroditus, and he's communicating it because, well, this is the form of communication in the first century. Paul did not have the privilege or the luxury of technology that you and I have, that if we change a plan or if we make a plan, we can drop a note to people pretty quick. We can call them on the cell phone. We can FaceTime. We can Skype. We can communicate with anybody in the world instantly. Well, Paul did not have that luxury. And so when he's writing this real letter, To real people in a real city, he includes real plans that involve Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he's so part of this passage is for communication purposes. He's simply trying to let his plans be known. But usually when Paul incorporates a travelogue in his letters, they come towards the end of the letter. But here he does not do that. He drops it in the middle of Philippians. He drops it in the middle so that if you're reading through the book, you may come to this passage and feel like, oh, well, what's this about? I'm going to leapfrog this and go on to chapter three and talk about knowing Christ and those types of things. But Paul drops this portion in this letter for a reason, because he's not just trying to communicate his plans. He's trying to illustrate his principles. Everything that Paul has said up to this point about living a life worthy of the gospel, everything he said about having the same mind or attitude as Christ that is focused on humility and service and considering other people more significant than yourself, these principles that he's been communicating, he's now about to drop some living, breathing illustrations on his readers. 
saying, I'm going to name these guys and I'm going to describe them in ways so that you can imitate, imitate so that you can see them as, as examples to follow. So what you find in Timothy and Epaphroditus in this passage are lives worthy of imitating. Pick up in verse 19. This is what he writes. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to spend to you a to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he got sick. Instead, he was, indeed he was sick near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, unless I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he, dearly, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So what you have here are living illustrations of all that Paul has been communicating up to this point. Now you read that passage and none of the gems that are popular in Philippians really surface. Philippians is full of these uh, verses that go well on Twitter. These little gems that we like to meditate, we like to write on index cards, stick it in our mirror in the morning, those types of things. We, we have verses like, uh, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion for the day of Christ Jesus. We have gem of verses like, for me to live is Christ but to die is gain. You get into Philippians chapter 2 and you have your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That passage we saw last week, that idea of working out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you both to will and to work according to your good, your good pleasure. These memorable, impactful verses, well, you're not really going to find a lot of those in this passage. This is, there's not a lot of uh, stuff that you're writing on index cards coming out of here. But that doesn't mean that this passage doesn't have a lot for us. God has given it to us for a reason, and he's given it to us to consider lives worth imitating. This is why D.A. Carson would say he, he, he realizes how important imitation and example is in the Christian life. This is why he said what he says about Christian characters is much caught as taught. That is, it is picked up by constant association with mature, mature Christians. Modeling takes place all the time, whether we take it into account or not. And because that is true and real, we want to look at Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples on what it looks like to live lives worthy of the gospel, what it looks like to have lives characterized by the attitude of Christ. These are guys that we should imitate, and those who are like them should be honored by us. And these are the types of characters that we want to see multiplied in our leadership development and in our disciple-making efforts. So again, two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Just to introduce you a little bit to them, one of the things I love about this passage is that Timothy and Epaphroditus could not have been any more different. Timothy was a guy who grew up in a believing household. He was exposed to the Old Testament scriptures early and often as his grandmother would teach him the scriptures. So he learned about God from his grandmother. As he got older, he met Paul and Paul introduced him to Jesus, said, you know those scriptures you've been studying? They're all about Jesus. He saw that, he believed that, his life was changed. So he was a guy who grew up in a believing household and met Jesus 
and started following Jesus. Some of you perhaps have grown up in a similar household. Maybe you've grown up in a household where you were exposed to the gospel early and often. And if that is your situation, don't let anyone discourage you from your heritage. Don't let anyone tell you that your upbringing isn't, isn't credible or that you only believe in the gospel or that you're only a Christian because you grew up in a home that communicated those truths with you. You see, I worry that we live in a climate today where those who grow up in a Christian household and they graduate high school, go off to college, begin living their life in the real world, so to speak, whatever that means, they start living their life in the real world and these other voices start speaking into their life. They get a professor who challenges the integrity and credibility of the scriptures. They, they get a boss who really wants to hold down the kingdom ethics that you are characterized by. And they want to challenge you or deconstruct you saying you only believe that because grandmother told you so. Well, if, if it ever comes to that point, let me encourage you to remember that your grandmother loved you. Your mama and your daddy loved you. That's why they exposed you to Jesus early. That's why they exposed you to Jesus often. So don't discredit your upbringing just because you were raised in a Christian household. I'm so burdened by that development in disciples' lives who think that their upbringing in a Christian household somehow lacks credibility. Do you understand? Do you understand how problematic that, that is? There are people who meet Jesus coming from other settings who would kill for that upbringing who would love to have the advantage you might have, of have uh, that you had with a Christian mom or a Christian dad or a Christian grandmother or a Christian grandfather. Don't discredit your upbringing. They loved you. This is why Paul, when he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, he says to him, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Get this, knowing from whom you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from you whom you learned it and how from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Continue on in the things that you were taught as a child. Don't discredit your upbringing just because a professor asked you to or challenged you to. Recognize that those who sowed the seed of the gospel into your life, they did so because you, they loved you. We need to give more credibility to the people who know us and love us than we give to impersonal voices that speak to us in a classroom, in a workplace, or on the blogosphere. So don't discredit your upbringing. But you might hear that and say, well, what about those who did not grow up in that type of household? There are plenty of us in this room who did that, and this is why. He doesn't just talk about Timothy. He also brings in Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus' upbringing was completely different. He did not grow up in a believing household. You know that by his name. His name, Epaphroditus, literally means belonging to Aphrodite. And Aphrodite was a Greek goddess that many people worshipped and trusted in in the first century. She was one of many Greek gods and goddesses that families were devoted to. And in Philippi, there was worship settings and environments that Epaphroditus would have grown up in. He did not grow up in a city that had a synagogue where he could have learned the Old Testament scriptures. He grew up in a city that was marked by Greek temples. And most likely, his parents would bring him into these temples and lead him into the devotion and the religious practices of, his, of the people of Philippi. So much so that mom and dad would name him Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus belonging to Aphrodite. So he did not grow up in a believing household, but at some point in time, he met Jesus. At some point in time, his life was changed by Jesus. And so if that's your upbringing, if, if that's your heritage, don't think, don't, don't step into the community of faith insecurely. 
Don't think that you, you're somehow starting backwards and you can't, don't have as much to contribute as those who might know more about the Bible than you or might have been trained from childhood to follow Jesus or whatever the case may be. Recognize that Epaphroditus lived a life worthy of imitation just as Timothy did. So whether you are a Timothy or an Epaphroditus, you can, by God's grace, live a life that is worthy of imitation. Do not discredit or discount your upbringing. So Paul presents these two guys, one from a believing household, one from an unbelieving household who did not have access to the scriptures, but both both of them lived lives worthy of the gospel. So what are some things that we can learn from them? I just want to give you a few characteristics to consider tonight. What does it look, what does it mean to live a life worth imitating? What does that kind of life look like? Now, as I share these with you, These types of messages can be challenging because usually we'll hear this criteria and then we'll examine ourselves and think, well, I've missed it. I'm nowhere near those marks or those levels. And if that's where your temptation goes as we walk through this list, let me encourage you to hang in there. There is grace in the end. There is grace available to us in this passage that can fuel and empower our lives so that we might live lives that are worth imitating. First one, if we're going to do so, we're going to learn from Timothy that we should value in we should value interpersonal relationships more than personal ambition. We need to value interpersonal relationships more than personal ambition. Look what he says in verse 20. He says for I have Paul says for I have no one like him referring to Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Who, who loves you, who's concerned about you. I, I have no one like him. And here's why. They all seek their own interests. They're all driven by selfish ambition, but not Timothy. Timothy's concerned with the interests of Jesus Christ. And so Timothy is a guy who valued interpersonal relationships more than personal ambition. He was concerned about the things of Christ. And if you want to know, well, what is Christ concerned about? Christ is always concerned about people. You know, Christ is not as concerned about your bottom line as you are. Christ is not as concerned about your accomplishments as you are. Christ is not concerned about your successes in this world as you are. What is Christ concerned about? He's concerned about people. And so we model Christ, we imitate Christ when we learn to value interpersonal relationships more than personal ambitions. But to be honest with you, we don't live in a culture that presents those types of models very uh, frequently to us. It seems like everybody's in the rat race. Everybody's trying to get ahead. And those who value personal ambition over interpersonal relationships, they will step on top of people in order to achieve their goals. And what happens is a carnage of humanity is left in the wakes of those who are driven by selfish ambition, those who, are more, who value more their own personal successes and achievements. And so it creates havoc in the world. It's, we have these models that are not healthy to follow. The American culture has been influenced greatly by the Getty family. I don't know if you've heard of Gene Paul Getty, but he was a a ferocious businessman. He started an oil company that in 1957 led him to be the uh, Fortune magazine, named him one of the most, or if not the most, richest person in the world. And although Getty was a ferocious businessman, he was characterized by the entrepreneurial, industrialist spirit of America, highly competitive. He wasn't a very good family man. And I say that not as a judgment on him. I say that as a result of the voices and the people who knew him and biographies and those types of things. He wasn't a very good family man. And you know this from some patterns in his life where he, would, he actually changed his will 21 times. Anytime his kids kind of did something that rubbed him the wrong way, he would knock them down a few notches. Sometimes he would write them out entirely, changing his will 21 times, personal ambition being more valuable to him than his interpersonal relationships. 
It got so intense that when his 12-year-old son died tragically the day of his funeral, he went to the funeral, then he went home and did the things that he would normally do, which was to log his business transactions in a journal that he kept, recording all of his stocks and his bonds. Well, on the day of his son's birth, this uh, death, this is what he wrote. He said, today we buried darling Timothy. Sad day, period. Space, and then he logged his next transaction. He logged his next stock. He logged his next bond. That, that was his competitive nature coming out. That was his ferocious business, businessman mentality. That was his personal ambition eclipsing the interpersonal relationships in his life. But Timothy sets a much better example. We are told that Timothy wasn't concerned about his own interests. He was concerned about the welfare of those around him. That's what he valued. That's what he treasured. You know, many people come to this conclusion when they are on their deathbeds. It's really interesting that if you ever talk to someone on their deathbed and the types of things that they're asking for, the types of things they're wanting to see, you don't meet many people. And so that's just a really twisted situation that asks to see something like their bank account or asks to see something like their trophy case. You don't see many people on their deathbed asking for you to play the highlight reel of their sports achievements. But what you do here on the deathbed is people want to see people. It's the relationships that they discover as more valuable than their personal accomplishments and achievements in life. But the challenge for you and I today is we don't want to learn that lesson then. We want to learn that lesson now. We want to start today valuing our personal, interpersonal relationships more than our personal ambitions. That's, that's how we're going to live a life that is worth imitating. But not only did he do that, Timothy, we learn in verse 22, he focused on forming character, not just improving competency. He focused on forming character, not just improving his competency. You look at verse 22. This is what Paul writes. He says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. There it is. You know Timothy's character. You know the way in which he's lived. You know he's trustworthy. You know he's honorable. You know he's humble. You know he's servant-minded. You know he's, he cares about you. His, he's focused on forming character, not just improving his competency. I read a book not too long ago written by a guy named Tim Irwin. This book was titled Impact, and he talks about leadership development and what does it mean to be a healthy leader. And his book is basically a bunch of case studies of fallen leaders, those who've messed up. And it's interesting that Irwin points out that, that leaders rarely fail because they lack competence. They rarely fail because they don't have the necessary skills. He says leaders usually fail due to a broken character due to the fact that they haven't developed what he refers to as their core. He says we have to have a strong core, and he would draw an analogy with the fitness profession. In the fitness world today, for several years now, the core has received all the attention. Because you know the core, those muscles in the midsection, those are what contribute to your coordination. Those are what contribute to your, uh, the longevity of your athletic career, usually. And so we want to, a lot of fitness experts are giving attention to the core because they're seeing the value of, of that, including athletes. He says the athletes in just about every, or professional athletes, athletes in just about every sport focus on developing their core muscles because it has proven to make them so much better at whatever sport they play. And then this is what he draws. He says, when our core is intact, when our core is intact and congruent, others experience us, referring to our character now, others experience us as authentic, humble, and trustworthy. He says, but when our core is compromised or conflicted, others experience us as arrogant, self-serving, and insecure. 
He says, no matter how artful a leader's style or competent their actions, every failed leader I have studied had a malfunctioning core. It had been broken in some significant way. Well, Timothy was a guy who concentrated on his core development. He was a man of proven worth. He had a proven character. He didn't just read books that could tell him how he could be, employ the best skills to be the most effective and influential leader. He said, no, I need to do the hard work of heart work. And he went after his character development. And it turns out it worked. As he is described as one of proven worth, of proven character. Now, what does proven worth or character look like? I'll give you two things. One, proven character, proven worth means consistency over time. It means consistency over time. It means you are engaging life consistently over time. And this is challenging in the culture that we live because, or it's challenging to all of our lives because the trouble with life is that it is so daily. Every day we got to get up and get out of bed again. Every day we have to go to the grind and do the things we did the day before. I don't know if you've experienced this, but life is incredibly mundane. Life for all of us is incredibly ordinary. And so what do you do with the mundane? What do you do with the ordinary? Well, you realize that proven character has consistency over time. You go about your days, yes, the mundane activities of day-to-day life, you go about those with integrity. You go about those with uh, consistency. You go about those with humility. You see, the test of our character, usually when we talk about character development, we want to focus heavily on the extraordinary challenges of our lives. When something hard or big or momentous happens, that's when our character is developed. But proven character isn't so much formed by these extraordinary challenges. Proven character is formed over the course of ordinary chores. It's just learning to live your life day in and day out in the ordinary cross-sections, ordinary rhythms, going about your day in a consistent in a consistent manner. So we don't want to be swept up in flash and and pomp. We want to engage the ordinary rhythms knowing that that's where character is regularly being formed and proven character can be developed in our lives. A guy by the name of Fred Craddock compares the Christian life in this sense to a thousand dollar bill. He says we would all like to uh, we think that giving, all of our, all, giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table. And so we take this $1,000 bill, we put it on the table, and we say, here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But then he goes on. But the, but the reality for most of us is that he sends us to the bank and has us cash in that $1,000 bill for a bunch of quarters. And we go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. 50 cents there. He says, usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy, he says, to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. This is where proven character is formed. It's 25 cents a day, 50 cents a day, ordinary activities engaged in a godly, graceful, humble, other-oriented manner. So it's consistency over, over time, but not only is it consistency over time, it means that your private life is consistent with your public image. It means that gap between who you are in this room and who you are when you're alone at night, that gap begins to shrink. Proven character means I'm the same person no matter where I'm at or who I am around. And that is very challenging for me to throw, to, throw at you today because I'm a pastor. I teach and preach the Bible on a regular basis for a living. 
I do this every week. I stand before people and I communicate ideals. I talk about life as God intended in these high, lofty ideals, hopefully grace and gospel saturated. But I'm talking about things that in and of myself I can't live up to. And there's been multiple times where I've gone home after talking about something on Sunday and then Tuesday rolls around and my wife looks at me and says, you know, that, that doesn't quite measure up to what you were talking about Sunday. And I get caught on it. It's tough. It's challenging. This is why I need grace. This is why I need to be developed. This is why we all need grace and we all need to be developed so that the gap between our public image and our private personal life begins to shrink. That's when proven character begins to occur, begins to arise. And so you see this in Timothy's example, but you also see this um, as you move on to the next one. Number three, we want to embrace cooperation over competition. Lives that are worth imitating value interpersonal relationships more than personal ambition. They focus on forming character, not just improving competency. And then third, they embrace cooperation over competition. You see this in how Paul talks about his pal Epaphroditus. You look at verse 25. This is what he says. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. Listen to how he talks about him. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. I love the way that Paul talks about this guy. Epaphroditus wasn't an apostle. Epaphroditus, from what we can tell, wasn't an elder or a pastor of a church. Epaphroditus was an ordinary disciple who volunteered to serve Paul and to serve, church by de- serve the church by delivering a message and by delivering money to Paul while he was in prison. But Paul dignifies him. He says, look, this guy is my brother. This guy is my fellow worker. This guy is my fellow soldier. And he and Epaphroditus are going about the same life. And that means that the Christian life is marked by three images. One, the Christian life is a family. And in this family, we take care of each other. It also means that the Christian life is a fellowship. We are literally sharing life together. It also means that the Christian life is a fight. So we got each other's back in this thing. When we see our family members believing lies, we want to identify those lies and help counter them with gospel truths and gospel realities. Paul is saying this is this type of ministry of of family life, of fellowship, and of being fellow soldiers in the fight of faith. He was blessed by Epaphroditus in that process. Now, I share that with you because Paul, if anyone it could be said, if anyone could have lived life on his own, doing his thing, following Jesus, detached from community, unreliant upon other human beings, you would say it was the Apostle Paul. If there was anybody who says, I'm going to live my life serving everyone, blessing everyone, but not really receiving service or receiving blessing from others, it would be Paul. But here you don't see Paul doing that. You see him talking about him being in a symbiotic relationship with Epaphroditus where he has blessed Epaphroditus and Epaphroditus has blessed him. They are living and working and following Christ together. And so what this means, we want to embrace cooperation over competition because some of us are so proud that we're not willing to receive help from those around us. And so it's kind of a competitive spirit where, well, I just want to bless you, uh, but I'm not really interested in you blessing me. I just want to serve you, but, but I don't really need you to serve me. And so it's one-sided, and when it becomes one-sided, it's more competitive than cooperative. It's like when I went out to dinner with a family last week, and, and the bill came, and he and I both reached for it. He invited me. He wanted to grab the tab, but, but I fought him on it. I fought him on the tab. I didn't want him paying for me and my family. And what was happening is, is my competitive spirit was coming. I don't, I don't want to be blessed. I, I want to bless. I don't want to be served. I want to serve. Well, if we're going to live lives worth imitating, we need to realize how interdependent we are. And we need to live lives that say, okay, I'm not just going to serve. I'm going to let other people serve me. 
I'm not just going to bless. I'm going to let people bless me. Why? Because I need it. We're not strong enough on our, on our own. We're in this thing together. So we're not competing for this. We're not competing for who can one-up one another in blessing and service. We're cooperating together, blessing each other in a symbiotic capacity. So we want to embrace cooperation, not just or over competition altogether. Then the next trait, we want to commit to the completion, our roles and responsibilities. Lives that are worth imitating, commit to the completion, their roles and responsibilities. Here's what we see. Epaphroditus was enlisted by the church and sent by the church to bring some money to the Apostle Paul. And we know he accomplished that task. If you turn over to chapter 4, verse 18, this is what it says. Paul writes, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Epaphroditus com completed his role and his responsibility in that, in that task. But if you notice what it is said of Epaphroditus, his role wasn't easy. The task he was given to do brought, was difficult. To travel from Philippi to Rome, which where many scholars believe that's where Paul was when he's writing this letter. It's, there's a little bit of talk about it, but, but so say it was Rome. That's 800 miles. That's about a six-week journey Epaphroditus took to bring this money to Paul. And along the way, we are told that he got sick. He was so sick, he almost died. But he completed the task. He wasn't deterred by the difficulty. He pressed on. He said, look, I've been entrusted with this role. I've been entrusted with this responsibility. I'm going to commit to its completion. And if you and I are going to live lives worth imitating, we need to learn to follow through with our commitments. If we say we're going to do things, we need to do them. If we commit to certain roles and responsibilities into the life of the church or in our employment or in our social circle, we need to execute them. We want to commit to completion the roles and the responsibilities that we've been given. Many of us perhaps are great starters but poor finishers. We're great starters, but when things get tough, we bail. When things get hard, we change course very, very easily. This is why marriages don't work a lot of times. Marriages usually start strong because a couple is in that honeymoon stage. But then the honeymoon stage dies down and gets more challenging. And what happens? They, they, they're tempted to bail because things get hard. And they're not, in some cases, willing to carry that commitment on to completion, honoring their commitment to one another when life gets hard. This, is, this happens in parenting when we are disciplining our kids and we learn that disciplining kids is really hard. It's hard to maintain consistency. It's hard to maintain a grace-oriented posture that is productive for them and good for them in every moment. And so what happens, we don't commit to bringing discipline to completion. Instead, when it gets challenging, what happens is we stop disciplining altogether. That's too hard. Let them do what they want. It's too much of a fight. It's too much of a hassle to tell them no. Or we become so heavy-handed and controlling in our parenting that, that we kind of go in that direction. But either direction isn't very helpful or productive for the child because the child needs discipline, needs grace-oriented, gospel-saturated, kingdom-focused discipline. But to do that, you have to be committed to the process. And you have to be willing to act on the things that you say you will act on as a mom or a dad. You have to be willing to do the things that you say you're going to do. You have to be willing to hold to the standards that you set out for your little ones. And yes, yeah, show them grace when they mess up, but also hold up standards and boundaries. And so we want to bring to completion the th roles and responsibilities that we've been entrusted with. That includes our marriages. That includes our families. That includes our jobs. That includes our responsibilities in the life of the church. 
Now, one of the things that's difficult about this dynamic as it relates to the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God's work is never really brought to completion. There's always more to be done. There's always more Bible to be taught. There's always more uh, service to be rendered. There's always something to be done. And this is why I want you to begin thinking along these lines in the various roles and responsibilities you have in the life of the church. When it comes to kingdom leadership and carrying out our tasks, our roles and responsibilities to completion, what that involves is you being willing to multiply yourself in others. I've heard Bryant Jones say multiple times, we should never do ministry alone. And what that means is everything that you do, you want to bring people with you. You want to bring others in on. You want to help them see what you do in and for the church. So that if you ever, so that you, in a sense, can work yourself out of your role and work yourself out of your responsibility. Kingdom leadership in this case is a lot like a relay race. We're not necessarily crossing the finish line until our lives are over and Christ returns, but we're going to pass the baton on and on and on and on. So if you're a missional community leader, let me encourage you to consider how can you pass that leadership on to someone else? Are you identifying someone who can take over that group for you? Maybe you can go on and start a new one, or maybe you can uh, take a different role in the life of that MC. Take a break, take a breather, give somebody else a chance to lead. So kingdom leadership is a lot like a relay race. And one of the ways that we commit to the completion of our roles and responsibilities isn't so much by bringing them to an end, it's bringing people up to take over for us in those ways. So that's how we want to be thinking about that, always wondering, how can I multiply myself and these roles and these responsibilities? Paul did this with Timothy. Timothy was a guy Paul set up to take over the church at Ephesus. That was a church that Paul had planted. And when he was ready to move on and he felt like his time there was gone and he wanted to go plant churches in other places, he said, all right, Timothy, you're up. And he was able to give that over to Timothy, and Timothy would then lead and pastor and shepherd the church at Ephesus. So we want to commit to the completion, our roles and responsibilities, which we cannot do unless we're committed to multiplying ourselves in the lives of others. And then lastly, the last characteristic we want to see from Epaphroditus is that we want to do things, we want to do hard things for the glory of God. We want to do hard things for the glory of God. Epaphroditus' trip wasn't easy. It was long, it was hard. He got sick and almost died, but he completed it. Listen to how Paul describes it in verse 29. Paul says, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, guys like this. Honor those who do hard things. Honor those who are going about uh, completing their roles and their responsibilities. Honor them. And then he says this. He says, For Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ. Here's the word. Risking his life. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That word risking carries with this idea of gambling. It's as though Paul is saying Epaphroditus was God's gambler. He did hard things for the glory of God. He risked a lot to do what he did. And so I want to challenge and encourage you to do hard things for the glory of God. I, I want to encourage you to refuse to cling to a self-protective strategy for living. I want to encourage you to do that which you might consider too hard for you. For some of you, that might mean starting a missional community. For others, that might mean just going across the fence and getting your neighbor's name. Diff hard is defined differently by different people. Whatever hard is for you, let me encourage you to do hard things for the glory of God. That's how we will live lives worthy of imitation. We want to take risks. We want to gamble, so to speak. But the good news of the gospel is that when we gamble, when we take, when we take risks, we play, we roll loaded dice. 
We are serving a God who's got the deck under his control so that ultimately when we take risks, we don't really take risks. Everything you do in service to Jesus in the world that is, no matter how hard, difficult, or challenging it is, no matter how mundane you may think it is, it may be, God's got this. We're rolling loaded dice in this world. We're serving a God who's got the deck under his control. The game is rigged, so to speak, and we are free to do hard things for the glory of God. So that may be missional communities. That may be starting a DNA group. That may be engaging in racial reconciliation in this city. Lord knows we need more disciples engaging on that front, seeking to build bridges and learn from others and contribute to gospel-seasoned, gospel-saturated culture change. So we want to do hard things for the glory of God. I want to ask each and every one of you to prayerfully consider what is God calling you to do right now? What type of ministry, what type of role and responsibility is God calling you to execute in the world that is right now? And if you think about it and you wonder, well, this may be hard. Well, yeah, it may be hard, but we should do hard things for the glory of God. And when we take risks, when we gamble, we always remember we're rolling loaded dice and we can do whatever God calls us to do. Now, you hear these criteria. Lives worthy of imitation. You consider them, you evaluate your life in light of them, and you might think, man, I'm nowhere near this. I got a little bit of that one and a lot left on the others or whatever the case may be. I don't want you to leave this space discouraged. I don't want you to leave this space defeated. I don't want you to leave this space with the wrong mentality about how to go about this thing and how to live a life that is worthy of imitation. And so what I want you to do is I want you to consider and I want you to realize if you think that you're falling short of this criteria that the answer to you falling short is not to white knuckle it. The response to tonight's message is not to take a grip on your life and say, I'm going to start living a life that is worthy of imitation. I'm going to start doing these things, weaving these criteria into my life so that you start white knuckling it in response to this message. And the reason for that is the same I shared last week. When you white knuckle something, you have no blood. When you squeeze something, the blood leaves your hands. That's why your knuckles turn white. So we don't want to respond. I'm going to white knuckle this thing. What you want to do isn't white knuckle in response to this. What you want to do is allow the gospel and the grace of God to saturate your soul. You don't white knuckle anything. You press into the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. You live under the reality that God has been gracious for you, and now God wants to be gracious through you. You consider how all that Jesus accomplished on your behalf, he now wants to multiply and to reproduce through the life that you live in this world. So you do not have to white knuckle this thing. You can live in the freedom of the blood of Jesus supplied to your life. Isn't this essentially what Paul says in this text? When you look back at verses 19 through 30, you remember that this passage is not, uh, is, to be, is not to be abstracted from its context. It comes on the hills of all this stuff that Paul's been saying about the gospel. It comes on the hills of everything that Paul's been describing about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. You look back at verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2 and, and you remember the song that we sing and, and you remember that these examples are fueled by that reality. These examples are formed because of the story and the song of the gospel. And so we want to rest in the reality tonight that what Christ has done for us, he wants to do through us. And I want you to consider what Christ has done for you. I want you to think for a moment about what Christ has done for you. I want you to think about how Christ valued interpersonal relationships more than personal ambition. 
Isn't that the first thing we learn in the song that we are given in verse 5? Where it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He valued interpersonal relationships more than his personal status and his personal ambition. He valued you. And because he valued you in that way, he was willing to focus on character, not just competency. This is why we are told that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. God became human and he walked this earth. But you know, he didn't walk this earth as a king. He did not walk this earth as a rich ruler. He walked this earth as a humble servant. That's character. He humbled himself. He served others. He loved others. He blessed others. That's how he went about his days. Character present and embodied by Christ. And he was consistent over time. His private life and his public image were in perfect harmony and sync. Then you think about Jesus, how he embraced cooperation over competition. That not only did he become human and live the life of a humble servant, we are told that he humbled himself by becoming obedient. What does that mean? Except that he cooperated with the will of his father. He obeyed his father in every moment of every day. He embraced cooperation over competition. He did not say, Father, I know you said this, but I'm going to do this. He said, Father, you said that, so I'm going to do that. That's what he embraced. That's what he embodied. But not only did he embrace cooperation over competition, Jesus committed to the completion, his role and his responsibility. That's why in that song it says not only did he become obedient, he became obedient to the point of where? To the point of death, even death on a cross. He went to the cross and died as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. He completed his work. He went to the cross and did what the Father ultimately sent him to do. And what's cool about that dynamic is that it's the same Jesus who completed the work of salvation for us on the cross is the one who says, you know, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He's going to bring your sanctification, your holiness, your transformation to completion as well. So he committed to completion his role and his responsibility. And of course, Jesus certainly did hard things for the glory of God. He did hard things. You think going to the cross was easy? You think going to the cross was easy? Why would you, how would you explain him sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane? But you see him there cooperating with his father, wanting to complete his mission wanting to do the hard thing for his father's glory. And we are told at the end of that song that God, after he died on the cross, God the Father highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You realize that everything we are called to in the Christian life, Jesus promises to be for us in the Christian life. You want to live a life worth imitating? Saturate your soul with the realities of the gospel. Think deeply about all that Jesus lived for, died for, and rose from the grave for. Think lovingly about his purpose for you and how all that he purposes for you, he wants to realize through you. That's how good and gracious our God is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you asking you to make us people who live lives worthy of imitation. And I pray that we would do so not because we are white-knuckling it through this world, not because we are seeing a standard and saying, I'm going to reach that, but because we are seeing a standard and running to Jesus. 
We are seeing a standard and saying, God, would you be gracious to bring this about in me and through me? God, would you make us a people who are, whose souls are saturated with the gospel, like Timothy and Epaphroditus, who are willing to do all the things that they did? God, would you make us, would you empower us, would you help us to go and do likewise? Again, not in and of our own strength, but by your grace, in light of the gospel. God, we ask and we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.